You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 127, The Forge War. Last week we wrapped up the 10 crucial days, ending with the victory in Princeton, which effectively allowed the Americans to retake most of New Jersey. General William Howe ordered General Cornwallis back to New York and pulled all British and Hessian forces back to Brunswick and Amboy, two New Jersey towns just across the river from New York City. Today we call these towns New Brunswick and Perth Amboy, in case you want to look them up on a map. New Jersey civilians, who had taken General Howe's oath of allegiance in order to protect themselves and their property, now found themselves branded traitors by the Patriots, who once again controlled almost the entire state. Patriot militia in New Jersey came out from hiding and began attacking British soldiers in what later became known as the Forage War. Now that the British and Hessian forces were concentrated in large garrisons, the Americans could not attack them directly without great risk. However, armies had to send out supply trains, reconnaissance parties, and messengers. They also had to send out foraging parties to find food and forage for themselves and their horses. When they left the safety of their entrenched bases, the militia had the chance to attack them. Today we would call this a guerrilla war, a term that would not come into use for a few more decades. Some at the time referred to this as the Petite Guerre, French for Little War. It consisted of groups of loosely organized and irregular troops without uniforms attacking the enemy and then fading back into the civilian population. Many of these attacks began spontaneously, without any orders from General Washington or anyone else. Local militia simply picked up their guns and used the opportunity caused by the fighting to take advantage of any opportunity they saw. On January 4, 1777, the day after the Battle of Princeton, a small group of militia, about 20 men on horseback, attacked a British supply convoy near Brunswick. They captured wagons full of winter clothing, which they sent to the Continentals, who were still heading to winter quarters at Morristown. In another attack that same day, militia shot two cavalrymen on patrol near Elizabethtown modern-day Elizabeth, New Jersey. The next day, British reported minor attacks near Newark, Rahway, and another at Boundbrook a day later. At first, the British thought they could squash these raids with a show of force, but they did not anticipate how numerous and aggressive the militia had become. After the attack on the patrol near Elizabethtown, the commander sent out about 60 Hessians accompanied by British cavalry to clear out any militia nearby. Now, technically they weren't Hessians, because they were from another German state, Waldeck, 
I'm calling them Hessians for the sake of simplicity, and I will tend to use that term generically to refer to any German-speaking soldiers hired by Britain, just as most English people did at the time. So, anyway, this group of Hessians and English went out as a show of force. But instead of scattering the militia, they found themselves in a pitched battle. All of the Hessians involved were killed or captured. Only a few of the British cavalry escaped on horseback to report the loss. General Howe then ordered the garrison out of Elizabethtown entirely and back to the larger encampment at Amboy. The militia, however, were in no mood to let the enemy retreat. They attacked the retreating column, which was two regiments strong. They took over a hundred prisoners and captured most of the enemy's baggage. Even the well-defended town of Amboy, with over 5,000 soldiers, did not completely deter attacks. Militia attempted at least two attacks on the town in the weeks following. They could not breach the British defenses there, but they unnerved the garrison and made clear that the occupying British could not rest easy. These initial raids inspired even more militia to take up arms and join the fight. By January 7th, one militia colonel thought that the recent events led to more than 12,000 men in New Jersey actively fighting in the Patriot cause. I think this was an overestimate, but the militia throughout the state began to take the field. Many may have felt guilty for not opposing the occupation when the British first invaded. Now that it was clear they at least had a chance, every Patriot sought to vindicate himself. This spontaneous militia activation came at a really critical time. Remember a couple episodes back in late December when Washington begged the soldiers to stay on for just a few more weeks to get through the critical battles at Trenton and Princeton? Well, by late January, the critical part of the campaign was over and the Continental Army was settled into its winter quarters at Morristown. Those soldiers, who had kept their promise and remained with the army during those crucial few weeks, were now ready to go home. Some of them were motivated by the victories to re-enlist, but even many of those men wanted to go home for the winter, rest up, and come back for a spring campaign. Washington also sent many of his best officers home to recruit new regiments. He would need these regiments for the spring, in the meantime, his Continental Army shrank to below 2,500 men, even fewer than he had during the dark days of December. So Washington had to rely on this militia, not only to prop up his numbers around Morristown, but to keep the British occupied and on the defensive. He did not want a surprise winter attack to threaten his own exhausted and weakened army. To fight the Forage War, Washington turned to General William Maxwell. Although Maxwell had only been commissioned a general in October 1776, he was an experienced officer. Maxwell had moved to America from Ireland in the 1740s. While he was still a child, his family settled in northern New Jersey. He always retained his accent, though, giving him the nickname Scotch Willie. In 1755, Maxwell signed on for the Braddock campaign, where he probably met Washington for the first time. During the French and Indian War, he served as lieutenant in the New Jersey Blues, giving him combat experience. As the war came to an end, 
Maxwell served as a British commissary officer at several frontier forts where he survived Pontiac's war. Maxwell eventually returned to New Jersey where he continued to serve as a militia officer. He backed the Patriot cause from the start, and when the Continental Army formed in 1775, Maxwell became a colonel of the 2nd New Jersey Regiment. He led his regiment as part of the relief column in early 1776 after the capture of most of the Northern Army of Quebec. He saw combat during the American retreat at the Battle of Trois-Rivières, or Three Rivers. Maxwell proved himself a capable combat officer as the Continentals retreated back to Fort Ticonderoga. During the summer of 1776, Maxwell almost resigned his commission after a younger officer, Arthur Sinclair, received promotion to general ahead of him. Sinclair was not only younger, but seen more as a brown noser to Congress rather than someone who had accomplished much of anything in combat as Maxwell had done. The promotion may have been political, but few officers from the Quebec campaign, which Congress saw as a failure, received promotion. Maxwell also had a reputation as a hard drinker, which may have held him back. In the end, though, Maxwell decided to put his ego aside and remain in the field to support the cause. Maxwell finally received his promotion to general in October 1776, but always had to contend with Sinclair having seniority over him. General Maxwell had an independent command in northern New Jersey in December 1776. At that time, as General Washington was still retreating into Pennsylvania, he ordered Maxwell to organize militia around Morristown to harass the enemy and also to secure boats along the Delaware River for use in transporting General Lee's army to Pennsylvania whenever they got there. After the Continental victories at Trenton and Princeton, General Maxwell helped to coordinate, organize, and supply militia actions to harass the British anywhere in New Jersey. Now, many of the militia, as I said, operated fairly independently. But Maxwell was able to organize many of the militia into larger fighting forces able to take on British regiments and battalions. In the weeks following the Battle of Princeton, the British attempted to regroup and assert some control. When smaller groups of British soldiers came under attack, they responded by sending out even larger parties. Instead of sending out a foraging party of several dozen men, they sent out several hundred, assuming more safety in numbers. But, as we'll see, that did not work either. On January 20th, a British force of five to 600 soldiers attempted to move supplies out near Somerset Courthouse and came under attack. This turned out to be a pretty large battle. General Philemon Dickinson, the younger brother of Congressman John Dickinson, led an army of 450 New Jersey militiamen and about 50 Pennsylvania riflemen to attack the British. Dickinson had settled in New Jersey a decade earlier. Like his brother, he was a lawyer but also a competent militia officer who proved that militia could fight on their own. In this battle, the British not only had superior numbers, but also had several field cannon that they put into use. They set up a defensive perimeter along Millstone Creek to challenge the Americans. The militia just moved downriver. 
there, the ice was too thin to cross, but they broke through the ice and crossed waist-high creek water to get to the other side. There, they formed up and charged the British position. The actual fighting only lasted about 20 minutes as the British force gave way, abandoned their supply wagons, and retreated from the field. In what became known as the Battle of Millstone, the British lost an estimated 25 killed or wounded and had another 12 taken prisoner. The Americans lost four or five men, but captured most of the enemy's wagons and supplies. The British commander, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Abercrombie, who, as you may recall, had led the advance brigade on the road to Trenton the day before the Second Battle of Trenton, reported that he had been attacked by Continental soldiers at Millstone because he was convinced that no militia would ever fight so aggressively on their own. Colonel Abercrombie, by the way, would go on to become a general, a member of parliament, and commander-in-chief of India. A few days after the Battle of Millstone, January 23rd, another group of militia attacked two British regiments on the march near Brunswick. Although the British regiments totaled over 700 officers and men, a group of 350 militia attacked them as they marched down the road. Caught off guard, the British took an estimated 30 or 40 killed and a larger number wounded. The next day, the British attempted to take the offensive by sending 600 regulars to attack a militia force near Quibbletown. Although the British forced a retreat, the militia put up a defensive fire that led again to significant British casualties. The next week, British General William Erskine attempted to set a trap for these troublesome Americans. He sent out a small group of British soldiers on a foraging party. When a group of 50 or so Americans attacked the foraging party, Erskine sprung a full battalion, including eight artillery pieces, against the 50 attackers. But the Americans ignored the numbers and charged into the British lines, throwing the surprised British into a panic. The artillery eventually stopped the charge, but the British ended up retreating from the field, having lost another 36 dead and roughly 100 wounded. Once again, the British tried to up their game. On February 8th, General Cornwallis himself led 12 battalions out into the field, daring the Americans to engage them. The Continentals and militia were not sufficiently organized to confront this large a force directly, but they continually fired on the enemy's flanks with hit-and-run tactics similar to what the British experienced in the retreat from Concord up in Massachusetts. This constant hit-and-run enemy fire eventually forced the army to retreat back to Brunswick. A few weeks later, Colonel Mahood, the same officer who had fought the Americans at Princeton, led several brigades out to capture or destroy the militia that had been harassing them. They found one small group of militia driving some cattle and sheep and attempted to pursue them. The fleeing militia ran over a hill. As the British attempted to chase them down, a line of soldiers rose up from behind the hill in a hidden position and fired a deadly volley into the British line. It turns out the Americans had set a trap of their own. The 2,000 British soldiers under Mahood hit General Maxwell's New Jersey Militia Army. The Americans devastated the British lines, 
forcing the British to retreat from the field. The British suffered nearly 100 killed or wounded, while the Americans took only 14 casualties. The battle took place near Spanktown, which is why it is sometimes called the Battle of Spanktown. Years later, for some reason, the town decided to change its name from Spanktown to Rahway, which is why some historians refer to it as the Battle of Rahway. Regardless of the name, the Americans definitely spanked the regulars that day. A few weeks later, on March 8th, Colonel Mahood tried to lead another expedition with 2,000 troops, only to run into another American ambush also commanded by General Maxwell. The ensuing battle led to another 20 American casualties and 60 British. Once again, the British had to retreat from the field. By April, General Maxwell's militia were engaging in regular raids on the pickets around Amboy, threatening the last major British position in New Jersey. General Howe brought in reinforcements that had been deployed to Rhode Island to ensure the Americans would not take this last British outpost at Amboy. The continual attacks on the British outposts over these months took their toll. The British abandoned Hackensack, soon occupied by General George Clinton, the Continental General, not to be confused with British General Henry Clinton. As the Americans captured territory, they began to deal with the Tories who had backed the British during the occupation. Many of them were arrested or saw confiscation of their property. Many other Loyalists fled to New York or simply hid in the Pine Barrens. Many who had signed the British Oath of Allegiance in order to protect themselves and their property now tore up those oaths as it was proof of their treason to the Patriot cause. The harassment of supply lines and foraging parties proved highly effective. British regulars and Hessians remained hunkered down in Brunswick and Amboy. Brunswick had been a village with a population of about 400 people, now had to support over 5,000 soldiers. Conditions were cramped and dirty, with little food or supplies. Uniforms turned to rags over the winter. General Cornwallis took command in Brunswick, where he had to fight to get supplies from New York for his men. He even paid for new uniforms for some of the Hessians out of his own pocket. After a few weeks, food and supplies began to flow to the New Jersey outposts. But the army remained cooped up in the towns along the river in miserable conditions. As a result, soon disease began to drain the army of even more soldiers. Meanwhile, just across the river in New York City, General Howe and the bulk of the army remained in relative comfort. Howe threw a big party to celebrate his investiture in the Order of the Bath, as well as the Queen's birthday. His officers celebrated with feasts, fireworks, and entertainment, even while his own army in New Jersey suffered from constant enemy attack. Howe enjoyed the company of his mistress, Elizabeth Loring. Her husband, of course, looked the other way as he grew rich on military prison contracts that led to the deaths of more Americans on British prison ships than in all the battle deaths of the war combined. General Howe's attempt to end the war without a great deal of bloodshed was now a complete failure. Officers and men openly questioned his competence and some even his dedication to the British cause. 
many grumbled that Howe was intentionally trying to lose the war because he supported independence. There is, of course, no good evidence to support these accusations, but Howe's loss of New Jersey led many to believe it was time for a replacement. The ministry, however, continued to support Howe. They gave him another year to vindicate his leadership of the army. The series of battles and skirmishes in northern New Jersey during the winter of 1777 are collectively known as the Forage War. Because they did not involve a famous general, and because most of the battles were rather small, it's commonly an overlooked part of the Revolutionary War. But the collective results were devastating. The British and Hessians lost nearly 2,000 killed, wounded, or captured during the various skirmishes and battles. The fact that the remainder of soldiers were forced into crowded and dirty conditions without sufficient supplies let disease take its toll on the army even further. The numbers speak for themselves. In August 1776, Howe had 32,000 soldiers in his army. Now, of those, he lost about 1,500 in the battles over Long Island and New York, and he lost another 1,000 or so Hessians at Trenton. But that would still leave him with nearly 30,000 men. By late winter, as Howe began requesting reinforcements for the spring campaign, he reported having only 23,000 soldiers, 14,000 of whom were healthy enough to fight. Many of those killed had been from his best units, which he kept on the front lines during the winter fighting. Those survivors were demoralized and uninspired by the leadership. In Britain, support for the war was beginning to fail as well. The war had been sold as a major offensive that would crush colonial resistance quickly, shock and awe. Now, with huge expenditures and little results, the army wanted even more soldiers for another campaign, which still did not guarantee any quick success. The Americans had proven themselves neither shocked nor awed. Howe requested 15,000 German reinforcements for the 1777 campaign. The request shocked officials in London, who thought his campaign had largely been a success and relatively bloodless, until the winter's setbacks began to show just how much the war was costing the army. When Howe learned he would only receive 7,800 reinforcements for the spring campaign, he had to scale back his war plans. In only six months since Howe first landed his force at Staten Island, the British invading force had gone from being invincible and overwhelming armies prepared to pacify the continent to defensive occupiers of the greater New York City area only. By contrast, the Continental Army grew over the winter. Not only did they receive new recruits, but the officers and men fighting in New Jersey grew more experienced and confident of their fighting ability. Also, the new recruits signed on for three-year enlistments. This meant that Washington would not have to replace his army each year and would have a professional corps of soldiers whose training and experience would remain with the army. Of course, the Forage War was only one series of actions that took place over the winter of 1777 following the victory at Princeton. Next week, we'll look at the Continental Army's attempt to recapture Fort Independence in New York. 
This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. This week, I want to thank Michael Hager for his support of the show on Patreon as a member of the Robert Morris Circle. That is the highest level of support that we have. I really appreciate Mr. Hager's support of the show at this highest level. Of course, you can become a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as $2 a month and enjoy all sorts of extras, including access to a private RSS feed with commercial-free versions of the podcast. You can also make a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. I have links for this on my website and blog if you are interested. Special thanks to Keith Boone, who left a big contribution for us on PayPal a couple of weeks ago. If you want to support the show either via Patreon or PayPal, there are links for both on my website and blog, where you can access either site. This week, I covered the four months of the Forage War in one episode. This fight really was a low-intensity series of skirmishes and small battles that mostly made the British and Hessians miserable over the winter of 1777. It also ensured that Washington's Continentals had time to recharge and that New Jersey remained out of British control. It probably also contributed to General Howe's fateful decision to attack Philadelphia from the south rather than try to march across New Jersey again. There were some important other events going on in this same four-month period, which I will cover in some future episodes. But I thought it was important to present the Forage War as a single episode rather than mention a skirmish here or there as part of some other episode as the podcast moves through the winter and early spring of 1777. As I mentioned in the main show, The Forge War gets little attention because there was no one major battle and because famous leaders like Washington played little direct role in it. But I think it really had a critical impact on the course of the war. Sadly, I've found no book that focuses on the Forge War itself. Most books which cover the campaign end with the Battle of Princeton. At best, the Forge War gets a brief mention in the epilogue. Books that cover the longer period of the war focus on the Battle of Princeton, then yada yada yada, 
the British counterattack in the spring with Saratoga and the Philadelphia campaigns. The Forge War really doesn't fit well into the narrative that the war began with volunteer militia, but by this time it was morphing into a professional army. Yes, the Continental Army was becoming more professional, but the militia were still absolutely critical to success both at this time and throughout the rest of the war. Since there is no good book for today's topic, I'm going to do what I've done before in such cases and recommend a good book that has nothing to do specifically with today's topic. Today I recommend The Unknown American Revolution by Gary Nash. Rather than focus on a specific topic or event, this book covers the entire era, but it's not your traditional book about the revolution going from beginning to end. It focuses more on how the population as a whole moved to accept revolutionary new ideas and supported the effort to break with Great Britain and form a new republic. It avoids the focus on elites that most of us, including yours truly, tend to look at when covering this time period, and goes a long way toward debunking the myth that the revolution was just started by a bunch of rich white guys to protect their money from taxation. Nash's 500-page book, first published in 2004, is filled with lots of interesting stories about commoners, including women, Indians, and slaves, as well as others overlooked when we tell the stories about the founding era. Professor Nash has been a history professor at UCLA for decades and has written more than two dozen books about all sorts of historical events and movements. If you're looking for something different about the revolution, please check out The Unknown American Revolution. For my online recommendation this week, I want to recommend another free ebook from archive.org. It is called Documents Relating to the Revolutionary History of the State of New Jersey, Extracts from American Newspapers, Volume 1. Now, I know, not the most exciting title in the world, but the book is a compilation of newspaper accounts relating to the war in New Jersey. It's a great primary source for everything happening in the state during this time period. Volume 1 covers 1776 and 1777, but there are also more volumes that cover the later years of the war. The editor of these books is William Stryker, who wrote other books about the war and this time period that I have cited in my blog for earlier episodes. If you want to check out the book, again, it's called Documents Relating to the Revolutionary History of the State of New Jersey. You can search for it on archive.org, or I've also put a direct link to it on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.